Hello and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. Our guest this week is Phoenix Perry. Yeah, I am Phoenix Perry. I am a game designer, a academic, a lunatic, uh, experimenter, journeyer, lost soul, I guess would be the way to put it. The thing that I do that I love the most is make games. I make hardware games specifically or games that are kind of outside a traditional AAA console context. So they'll be on a phone or they'll be in a museum or in a gallery or involving like tons of sensors and actuators. So that's the kind of games I make. As an academic, I'm really interested in looking into creative technologies. Not only games, I'm kind of interested in like the whole scape because simultaneously to being a games designer in New York for over a decade, I was a art director and creative director in advertising. I still have a deep passion for design. So I am a lecturer presently at Goldsmiths where I created a program in independent games and playable experience design. On the other side, I have the game that's doing really well. It's called Bot Party. And it is a game about getting people to hold hands and reconnect to each other in like a very physical and tactile way. Currently balancing her lecturing alongside her work as a game designer, researcher, and speaker, we started by getting insight into these roles and her daily routine. Yeah, I have no life. And that, I, I mean that like legitimately. Like I remember the last time I went out and saw some friends, it was about three and a half, four weeks ago. So I get up around seven every day. I spend from about seven to 10 looking at stuff, researching, planning, thinking about what it is I need to do or make. If I have to go to work that day, it could mean me soldering some stuff and like building for a while. So it depends. And then I'll go into work and I'll do whatever it is I need to do at work. But I have a job where so many of the ideas I'm thinking of in my game design are directly applicable to my students, which makes studying with me a really different experience than studying with non-practicing designers. So I'll be thinking about this thing and I'll take all those ideas into the class. So it'd be like, okay, I'm thinking about tactile games. We're going to go and play 20 tactile games this term, and we're going to talk about that and think about that. So that's really a fun thing that I get to do. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I'll come home and then I, you know, eat, chill. Eight o'clock comes, I drink more coffee, (laughs) and I tend to work till about like midnight. Sometimes when it's really hot, like it has been, I'll fall asleep at 1030 because I can't anymore. Particularly if I have a deadline, like game conference or whatever, eight to midnight is like full work schedule. I've been like this my whole life. Like I love making things. And if I'm not making something, I'm like direly unhappy. I think even if I was living in the woods and there was no technology, I would be the kind of person that would be building their own log cabin or, you know, I have to be doing something. And if friends want to come out, you know, and hang out with me, I'll be like, come on over and we'll solder some stuff. This is my idea of fun. And it's, it's kind of sad. With the love of making things, building communities and exploring topics close to her heart, Phoenix has already lived a few different lives, both creatively and professionally. I think my beginning is white trash is everybody else. Uh, <laughs> I was a really smart kid in the South. 
Uh, I grew up in a lot of sexism and racism and homophobia. I left the South, but I did a literature degree, started out in computer science, played Magic the Gathering with a bunch of nerds for years, was really bored, and discovered the art building, and there were women over there, and there was, like, intellectual thought. So I jumped majors halfway through, but that left me with a bunch of coding skills I picked up early on. So that that led to me moving um, to the Bay Area more as a result of, like, I wanted to be part of this, like, cyberpunk, out there, 90s, futurist, nonsense culture, which is now really trendy again. It's very funny for me to watch. And at that time, there were no jobs in tech, or they were very few and hard to get. I did not have employable skill set because I, I knew how to build web pages, believe that or not. So I worked in coffee shops and art galleries and was a layabout hipster for several years until Silicon Valley got large enough that my skills were relevant within it. And then I worked in the Valley for a while, then ended up hurting my body really bad. I got a workplace injury that I'm still disabled from today, but whatever. Spent five years not working, trying to recover from that. Through a ton of parties, events, DJs, I became a visual artist, uh, really doing profoundly a ridiculous number of films and stuff at that point in time. That all went surprisingly well. I toured the world with that. Uh, have fo- I have films on permanent collection at SFMOMO, which is fun. Yeah, and then moved to New York, did games, and then design at the same time. Finally cracked, went back. Did my master's in engineering with a focus on live performance and music. I had a band at the time. I also owned an art gallery in New York for five years. We threw hundreds of shows around the intersection of art, new media, science, and design. Uh, When I first moved out to the Bay Area, I was really enamored with alternative cultures. And I still am. I obviously have spent my entire life building communities and cultures. That's been what I've... If there's one thing, one thing, I've built communities and cultures. Like Devotion, my art gallery had a massive community around it. CodeLib has community around it. So I was really interested in V. Vale's work uh, from research publications. So if you know his stuff, he does these like interviews with everyone from that time, and they're really well-done interviews, and I used to love to read his books. And so I convinced him to let me intern slash work for him, (laughs) and it was really cool. And it was a really interesting and profound experience because I was around all these creative people doing really fun and interesting stuff and kind of being inspired and learning. So I would say if you're young, the most important thing you can do is get yourself involved in a creative community and go find an artist you think is worth your time. Like someone who does what you could see yourself doing in 20 or 30 years and hang out with them. They'll hang out with you. You'll be surprised. Famous artists will totally just hang out with you if you're in your 20s. Just ask. Like Vale never paid me. He paid me in books and like cool, fun coffee cups with like, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti happens to be around. Or, you know, I get to go look through all the, you know, early photos. And, you know, he tells me about the time he met Susie Sue or like, you know, his years spent with Burroughs, you know. And even yesterday when I talked to him, he and Burroughs were really close for a while. So he told me something Burroughs said, which I I think is really important. And I, I was actually meditating on it this morning which is, this is not the world as you want it to be. This is the world as it is. And Vale was like, use what you have. It's so wise. It's so, it's so subtle, but it's hard to hear because we're all optimists, right? We all want this like utopian world where we're all treated equally and everyone is fair, but that's not the world we live in. And you have to like strategically make alliances and think, how can I bring about what it is I want 
while still being really grounded in the realities of what I have. Phoenix would find success in the world of advertising before giving that up to follow a more fulfilling and independent path. I took a hard turn and I, I would encourage anyone who, this is going to sound really scary if you're one of these creatives working in somewhere like Widening Kennedy or, you know, some really decent agency that's not god-awful. And you're making a lot of money because I, I, I was making a great salary. That industry pays fantastically. So, you know, you could work on an advertising game for Nike or whatever. But usually your soul is rotting out. Like, you feel it. You're like, my heart is dying. And I think that's really a common thing for creatives who come out of school and have this, like, you know, student loan debt and all these worries. Like, I got to get money. I have to be stable. I need to succeed. And you go into the design world or the development world or the creative technologist world. And you work really hard to kind of build this career. But meanwhile, some people are super happy in that life, and that's great. I am not one of those people. I am an artist first, and I struggled really hard. And around 2010, I was like, my soul is dying. And I sat down and made a five-year plan of what transitioning my career would look like. But I took a hundred and forty thousand, fifty thousand dollar cut immediately when I switched careers. And there's this book called The Artist's Guide, which I recommend to everyone. It's got some really practical advice about planning if you want to survive as an artist and like what your financial landscape needs to look like. Because a, a piece of my income definitely comes from doing talks and events and other things on the side in my own games and consulting. And then another piece of my income comes from teaching and another piece of my income is like from odd things that just happen, like, could you do a thing for us? And and all that works, but it is a very different kind of structure than a regular paycheck, even though my academic job does give me a regular paycheck, which is why I do it. It's the, it's the base pay that keeps me from starving, which I recommend every artist uh, do something like that. But that's what my day-to-day life looks like in terms of that. And it took me five years to get my salary back up to a middle-class salary. You know, I I took a a severe spike. Living in New York City on like 24 to 30,000 a year is a deep challenge. Makes me feel for everyone who's got a minimum wage job in New York. But I was so much happier. That money was a complete chain. It is a lock. And anyone in this position is going to agree with me immediately. You spend all that money on self-care and self-medicating because your life sucks. Stop it. It is just not worth it. It's crazy town. Do what you love. Do what makes you happy. That's why you're here. Throughout her career, Phoenix has bucked trends and pioneered in a field that has since attracted a mainstream following and evolved into a lucrative industry. For anyone less familiar with the expansive world of game design, Phoenix fills us in on the current landscape and just how far and wide it stretches. If you think of it like a circle, there are different spaces. So there's the whole games for good and social change and corporate world, the gamification world. And this world kind of lives in a NGO context. It lives in a nonprofit context. It lives in a corporate office context. And these are people who are repurposing tactics from games and game design to sort of apply them in a very applied context. Like 
I made a game, for example, that helped political refugees adjust to life in the United States. That's one kind of game. And it's designed very differently than these kinds of art games, which exist in another part of the circle. And these art games are completely anything. They can be subversive political acts. Like there is this game called uh, Cam Over, which I love. And it's about mapping all of the security cameras in your area and then destroying them, which I love. And these games, they kind of live in a different place. There are games in that world like... LED strips that you play in like one dimension and chill out rooms and all these like, you know, luminoid out there subversive spaces. Those are a completely different space and they have a different community entirely, different designers, different interests. And then you have the people who are like, let's get paid. (laughs) And they're making games almost exactly like you wouldn't design. They do the whole thing. They like analyze the market, they look at what's working, they sort of replicate things that they know are tried and true. And this is how you get like 50,000 zombie games because they're reliable sell tickets, basically. For If you make them in a certain way to a certain caliber with a certain budget, you can kind of think they're going to make a certain amount of money if you're lucky. Next, we asked Phoenix the essential skills needed to develop games as an independent designer. You need to be super nimble. If you're going to be an indie and you're not going to work in a major studio, let's just say you're going to go that route and you want to sort of make games that you love, that you care about, you need to do everything. Games are really ruthless. You need to be able to code at least enough to get a prototype together or use a tool like GameMaker well enough that you can interest a developer to collaborate with you. Or you just need to have art skills that are so just insanely off the map, it's still going to be a trouble to get a developer because developers all have their own ideas for games, right? They don't want to make your game. So you better have at least some development skills. You better have halfway decent art chops. Having some sound stuff under your belt does not hurt. Being a game designer doesn't hurt. Being able to do self-promotion and marketing doesn't hurt. It is, is a relentless business, and that's before you even get to the writing and the storytelling and thinking about pacing and rhythm and flow. As a labor-intensive process with no guarantee of reward once a game is released, we also asked Phoenix her advice on funding independent game design. Crowdfunding is your number one. Like, that is your number one. Have a really, really well-established online profile. So if you can have a Twitter account with 20,000 followers, you've got a shot. You need very compelling content. And you need to have a community, which means you need to be going to games events and you need to be shaking hands and you need to be making friends and you need to be part of that independent games community. And then you can try kickstarting and getting crowdfunding. Outside that, you now have the other situation where you can attempt to pitch to something like Games Fund here in the UK. There's the BGI, which just got started, which is trying to open up revenue streams to developers and companies. You can apply to things like that, follow things like that. Yuki has a list of funding, but all of that stuff is a gamble and is a risk. In 2013, Phoenix co-founded Code Liberation, a non-profit organization for women and non-gender conforming individuals to learn code. She describes the lead up to the project's founding, and the reasons why she felt such an organization was necessary. 
I think what happened is I saw a problem. In 2000, I think 12, PlayStation emailed me and they're like, we want you to make a prototype for the new console we're going to release. I make this prototype and they, they have this invite only game jam. And, you know, they handpicked everybody in that room. And it ended up being all the members of Early Code Liberation. I noticed that all of us had a very different attitude than the guys in the room. The guys were like, we're going to win the award. And the women are like, do you need any of my code? Can I give you any of my things? And, like, we're all talking and sharing. And I'm like, the game that ended up beating my game out, ultimately, I actually, like, gave code to, and they gave me code. And there was just, like, super collaborative spirit. And ironically, PlayStation decided to take three titles to GDC and put them on the Vita for display in the PlayStation booth at GDC, which it does not get more high profile than that. You don't get bigger. That's it. And because you you walk into GDC, there is the PlayStation booth, there is the brand new hardware everyone wants to touch, and your game is on it. That's a big deal. I walk around the GDC convention floor after being in the PlayStation booth for several hours, which was a surreal experience because men kept coming up to me and they thought I was a booth babe. And I was like, no. They're like, so tell me about this. you know. And I'm like, this is my game. And they would be like, wait a minute, your game? And I had people just like constantly question whether or not I had made the game I was holding. And I was like, I had no context for what was going on. I didn't know that the GDC hires women to work in booths at that point. I didn't know anything. I was just standing there holding my console. And as I put it down, I decided to walk around the GDC convention floor. You know, they're like these big fat dudes who look like they've not showered in a week, walking around, and they're these, like, latex-clad women laying on, like, fake dragons. And, like, you know, like, this is worse than Comic-Con. This is horrible. There was a reason I wasn't being included in games. It wasn't because my games were weird. It wasn't because I couldn't make a successful game. It was because I was a woman. And I was like, oh, so all these years, I've not been part of this scene. It had nothing to do with the caliber of my work and everything to do with the fact that this is the reality of this business. So that's when I, I took on a mission and took it on originally with Kat Smalls and Freeman and Jane Friedhoff. And we sort of locked arms and decided to change an industry. And we changed an industry. Like, I am convinced what we did helped push forward games for women. And the backlash was extreme. Then we sort of settled out from that. And now games are in a place, they're aware of their nonsense. Like Xbox brought out accessible controller. I had to like bottle a lot of rage because I have a disability. And for years, I've struggled to play console games. When they brought this out, a piece of me had to go and just like scream for a minute because I spent 18 years wanting it. But I'm also really angry it took them 18 years to address anything involving disability. 18 years. But now they know they have to have their nonsense together. They can't do it anymore. So games have, they've woken up to the fact they're women in this industry. They've woken up to the fact they're disabled players and they have to have accommodation for them. There's still a lot of dumpster fires, but positive changes are visible. And also I feel like The other thing that's happened is conferences doing things like having codes of conduct. Even if they're badly enforced, at least they're there. (laughs) Finally, Phoenix shares her wisdom for those wanting to follow a similar path and get into independent game design, including tips for finding your way without a formal education. I've heard it said many a times, if you can do anything else, do it. (laughs) Being a creative person and being an artist is a hard path to walk down. 
you know, I, I, I had a joke that is, you know, you get the, a Robert Frost poem, rather, about, you know, the path in the woods, and I took a different path. No, as an artist, you're not taking a different path. You're getting a machete, and you're hacking down trees to, like, make your own way through a jungle. And I, I would say just be true to what you want to do. Uh, try and make as few compromises as you have to economically. My advice to anyone who's young right now is do not take student loan debt. It's a chain. Don't go to one of these $100,000 a year schools. You cannot afford it. You cannot pay it off. If you can get a free education, do it. Consider carefully whether it's worth it. I've met a lot of incredibly successful people who don't have a college degree. Think very carefully, am I going to get the skills that I need or am I doing what society is telling me I need to do? Communities online is good. I think looking at smaller independent schools is really smart, like School for Poetic Computation in New York, or I'd say look at events like that you find really compelling that are in your vein of interest and try and link communities and arms by going out and going to events and learning from artists individually. Like Basquiat, I think he, he really has an alternative path that's worth looking at. He went to artists and just studied directly. He's like, I'm going to go hang out with Keith Haring. I'm going to go hang out with Warhol. I'm going to go hang out with all these famous people because they will let you do it. I know it sounds crazy and it might take a minute, but they will let you do it. Just aggravate them in like a gentle and kind and loving way and be like, I will help you. What is it? Because every artist, is, they have too much on and you can definitely go like mix paint their studio and get to know them, you know? <laughs> this episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Indy Davis, and the guest was Phoenix Perry. The editor was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand patrons. They include us two, GF Smith and the Paul Smith Foundation. For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com.